Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the stories we've been hearing a lot about is the great California exodus, people leaving the state. And while that continues, it might not be what you think. Many people are moving, but not necessarily out of state. Instead, they're moving inland to the east. The Inland Empire tied Phoenix for 2020's biggest gain in households as people are looking for bigger properties and cheaper home prices. With this influx of new households also comes more economic opportunities and more diverse neighborhoods. For more on where Californians are moving, we'll speak to Christine Mai Duke, state politics and housing reporter for The Wall Street Journal. There is a lot of talk about people leaving California altogether, whether it's the politics, the high taxes, kind of narrative that there's this exodus. But in reality, a lot of people want to stick closer to home. A lot of people want to be able to afford a home or a bigger home, but they want to stay in California. And so there's this kind of demographic churn that's happening of people moving more east, uh, more inland, and into places that have cheaper land, cheaper housing prices, kind of newer schools in some cases. And what comes with that, though, is sometimes, you know, longer commutes for people who still continue to work in those metropolitan coastal areas. So that's been a trend for quite some time, maybe the last couple of decades or so, or so, because so much more housing building has happened in the inland areas. But it really did accelerate during the pandemic. What you saw was, based on our reporting, people who had a little bit more flexibility with their employers on whether or not they had to go in the office or how often really took the opportunity to finally upgrade their home and spend a lot less money for something that they could stretch out and have a little more room, um, be able to send their kids to better schools. So it, you know, increased the net gain of households into the Inland Empire area, as you said, Riverside and San Bernardino counties, by about 50% from the year before. So it was a really big marked increase. Yeah, definitely. And I also love this other stat that you have there in the article, that the Inland Empire tied the Phoenix region For 2020's biggest gain in households, this is from migration nationwide. So people coming from all over the place, obviously, but it's a big driver of those from California. And one of the interesting things you you noted here, too, right? So the coastal cities and places like L.A., San Francisco, it's still home to a lot of very affluent people and then very low income people. So it's tough to put people in a middle class now, right? Because those lines have all kind of blurred, too. But people moving towards the Inland Empire, it's kind of becoming this more middle class area. And even then, the effects it's having there is pushing people out further east, too. The people that I talked to who recently moved to the Inland Empire, you know, the Inland Empire is a vast area that goes all the way to the Arizona and Nevada border and also comes right up against the L.A. and Orange County borders. So you're talking about a huge variation of the different types of housing, the socioeconomic status of these communities, the quality of the schools, all these things factor in. But for the people who I talked to, you know, they ranged anywhere from making a couple thousand dollars a month to, you know, being able to afford $1.2 million home. So when you talk about the middle class and who can afford to live there, the people who are moving there alone are, are kind of varied. But people that I've talked to who have lived there for a really long time are recognizing these rising house prices 
in the Inland Empire specifically because of the people who are coming and bringing their bigger budgets and what impact that is having on them. So people who live there already and want to move or upgrade their home have to move even further east to find what they're looking for. Or renters, you know, are finding that they're stuck and locked in where they are because they can't afford to move. So it's definitely having a major impact on the local economy, the local housing market. And we're just going to have to see what happens from here. One of the cities that you profiled in the story is Eastvale. Was a very young mayor, by the way. I did not know that. I think she's 26 years old. Young city, young mayor. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit about that, because there's a lot of people going there. Eastvale is a really interesting place that has, you know, really sprung up almost out of nowhere. 20 years ago, this place was all dairy farms. It only incorporated as a city, became an official city in 2010. And since then, they just had gangbusters development of almost all of their housing stock, all of their homes, which are mostly single family homes, have been built since the year 2000. I mean, that is just insane to just see this area that was just literally all cow field now turned into all housing. The end of 2020, the last dairy farm, which used to kind of dominate the area in Eastvale, closed down for good. So it's now a very classically suburban California town and they've got, you know, a school district that's bursting at the seams. They've got big, nice, manicured thoroughfares. They've got shopping centers. They've got two dozen businesses that are expected to open in the next two years in a town that's relatively small, honestly. So it's kind of this indication of the affluence that's moving in from L.A. and Orange counties. A lot of people, city leaders say, do end up commuting to those areas or they work from home. And it's really interesting to me to see kind of this town that we saw a lot of people going to for the affordability, for the kind of quality of life that they could get for the price. And it's really indicative of some of these these transplants to the Inland Empire. Yeah. Jocelyn Yao, their 26-year-old mayor, said that, hey, she's pointing to another city in Orange County, Irvine, California, which is a great place, obviously, a lot of affluent people, too. She's like... Hey, we have everything that they have, just about half the price, though. So she's like, come down over here, basically. And, you know, the median household income there in Eastvale now is about 120000 uh, which is more than any other city there in that region. So it's, it, it, so that, that's looking very good for them. And with all that, the influx of people, influx of money and everything, right? The, so the local economy is doing well. You mentioned about a bunch of businesses opening in Eastvale, but just in the region altogether, right? We're seeing huge Walmart and Amazon fulfillment centers, a lot of job opportunities, and just because they have the space for a lot of it. Yeah, so that is true, right? There are these huge opportunities for jobs with the logistics hubs there with Amazon in the area. And it's not just East Vale, it's just like the whole Inland Empire is home to a lot of these warehouses. But that has been an ongoing debate about whether that's a good thing, right? I mean, you have these folks who are still, you're not making $119,000 median income working at Amazon, or at least the vast majority of those Amazon jobs. So one of the issues is, you know, as more and more people move out to places like East Vale and commute into LA and Orange County during the week, that's going to have a major impact on traffic. There's residents there all talk about the traffic on the freeways and how how terrible it can get, you know, even during the pandemic in, in some cases. And so traffic, there's, you know, auto emissions, kind of climate change issues, and, and also who lives there and who is experiencing the pollution from that increased traffic from the trucks that are going in and out there. So there's an ongoing debate that we didn't really get to get into in this story about what types of jobs can be generated in the area to keep more of the workers there, to kind of get the economy going locally, even if people are moving out for housing prices, like what types of jobs can be there to actually help sustain the rising housing prices even there. And and that's a very 
interesting discussion because, right, we were talking about this California exodus. And for a time, people were pointing to places like Idaho and Iowa and things like that, where there was a lot of Californians moving over there. And then all these big, all these big, right, all these small towns that the influx of people were going to started causing all these extra problems, right? The increase in traffic, pollution, noise pollution, all that. And the locals there were not having it. They didn't like it anymore. So that'd be an interesting thing to see how, how the residents, longtime residents of these areas feel about the influx there. So, yeah, I mean, just an interesting look at all of that. And you mentioned the diversity, right? The, the political diversity that's going on in these areas as they start to change, too. Yeah, absolutely. Riverside County, for example, you know, 10 years ago had more Republican registered voters than Democrats, and that has switched in the last decade. And I think, you know, the big cities always kind of start to become more diversified and more Democratic leaning first. But I think that's happening throughout the county now as people move further and further out and they're taking um, kind of their backgrounds with them. They're taking their political beliefs with them and in in cases kind of growing those communities. So it'll be interesting to see, um, especially with redistricting coming up now, what that looks like in the future. I'm not sure, but it certainly is going to have major impacts when you have this much movement of people within the state of California. And I will say too, all those places that you mentioned, uh, Boise, Texas, all the places that are complaining about traffic and other things. I mean, there's also a huge increase in housing prices when outsiders come and bring those budgets in the same way that we're seeing within California and in in the inland areas of California. And so at the base of this, the issue is there isn't enough housing for anybody, period, right? The housing prices continue to go up. And I think it really puts a fine point on the shortage of housing and affordable and available housing, especially in the coastal areas where people are leaving. But, you know, that just continues to have ripple effects more and more inland. Christine, my Duke, State politics and housing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Christine. Thanks for having me. Finally for this week, an interesting story on the education front. The cost of getting some professional degrees are leaving students with high debt and without the high salaries to match. Programs for veterinarians, dentists, chiropractic medicine, physical therapy, and even optometry are producing graduates with high debt and very modest beginning salaries two years in. For a look at how some of these professional degrees are still hurting students, we'll speak to Andrea Fuller, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. We've been covering student debt really intensively for the past year. And one of the things that I noticed as we wrote about high debt graduate degrees like film and social work, people would say, oh, the debt, um, sure, it's manageable if, if you're a dentist, because then you're going to go be a dentist and you'll make a lot of money and you'll be fine. But actually, that's not necessarily the case. And some of these people with professional degrees are borrowing astronomical amounts of money. We're talking half a million dollars to become a dentist or a veterinarian. And while their salaries are higher than the average American, they're not making enough to really cover the interest on this because these loans, you're paying on grad plus loans, often six, seven percent interest. So you see cases where people owe $20,000 a year in interest and it can quickly get out of control. You mentioned grad plus. Explain that a little bit because this is a program that lets students cover their school costs and living expenses. And I think that's important because if you're rolling everything into these loans, that's where these high prices are really coming from. Absolutely. So 
Grad Plus is just a, a name for a government loan program, but what it, it means essentially is graduate students through this program can borrow up to the cost of attendance of college, including books, fees, living expenses, et cetera. And so no matter how high colleges set prices, students can borrow in Grad Plus what they owe. And that is how we have the situation of people having half a million dollars in federal loans. Tuition has risen at all levels of education, but including veterinary schools and dentistry schools. We have some numbers in our story that show the average debt load has increased really dramatically over the last 20 years, certainly faster than salaries. And sort of a rule of thumb is don't borrow more than you owe. And even if a dentist is earning nationally, the median salary for dentists is, is around 164000 I believe. And that is still far, far lower than what people in these programs are actually borrowing. For these industries themselves, the other thing is, is that if a student has this high debt, they're going to go where the highest paying job is. A lot of time that takes them to other places and it could leave these gaps in services in certain areas, certain rural areas where they could be short of dentists, could be short of veterinarians and other health providers. And uh, so it could create these gaps in services also. That could be a, another problem that's happening. There are far-ranging consequences of this. If you have $400,000 in veterinary school debt, it's really hard to make that choice to go be a rural veterinarian. Most of these people that we talk to are on what are called income-driven repayment plans. So the government lets you make payments according to your income. And that's ultimately very beneficial for the students in the short term. The problem is in the long term, their balances will grow because they're not covering the interest. And so you end up in these situations where you can get your debt forgiven after 20, 25 years, but you're going to owe this huge tax bill on your debt forgiveness. So we're dealing with a situation where there are really long-term consequences for the students. There are long-term consequences for these professions, including you know, a lack of rural dentists and veterinarians. And then there are long-term consequences for taxpayers. We've written in our reporting throughout the year that Grad Plus was thought to be a, a moneymaker for the, you know, the government. People could borrow money and, and they'd all pay it back because they're going to grad school, right? So they're, they're going to be wealthy and they'll all pay it off. But my colleague Josh Mitchell has written about how the federal government's lending program is actually potentially facing a budget hole because people are actually not paying off what they're borrowing. Sarah is one who finished her veterinary studies at University of Pennsylvania with about $400,000 in student debt. And this is, I guess, uh, an extra 30000 from loans from prior studies also. So she has $430,000 worth of debt. She is working as an associate veterinarian for about $100,000 a year. But I think in the end of the story, the debt came out, I guess, overall, she would have had $700,000 total because of accumulating interest. I mean, that is insane amounts of money. It really is. And yeah, Sarah was using a calculator provided by a veterinary industry group that allows you to sort of project your student loans. And, and obviously, there are lots of unknowns. You don't know exactly at what your rate your salary is going to increase. It's hard to estimate all these things precisely. But the way it works is 
you pay 10% of your discretionary income on these income-driven repayment plans, and that doesn't cover the interest payments. The interest on these $400,000, $500,000 loans is so high that after years and years and years, you owe or you can owe far more than you started. So it's really psychologically daunting for a lot of people to be making payments, to be making substantial payments and to see their balances grow and grow and grow. The school really matters as well. You made mention in the article for dentistry programs, University of Southern California in Los Angeles and New York University in New York City. In some cases, the median debt was more than four times as much as the median earnings that graduates were getting. NYU specifically with uh, their dentist program, they say, you know, you could expect to pay 572000 for its four-year program. This includes living expenses. And then in a contrast, there was another school out of North Carolina, which the program is geared to people who are going to stay in the area, in the state, and their debt is way lower. Schools like NYU and USC are among the most expensive in the country. And, and one of the things that for dentistry and one of the things that we've been writing about this year is the sort of allure of these big name schools. We only have early career earnings data on the school level. And because, for example, in New York State, you have to do a residency for dentistry, it's not fully clear what their earnings are going to be. But again, nationally, the median pay of dentists is in the 160s. So we're not looking at astronomical median pay for dentists, but there, you know, certainly are higher paid dentists than that. And so with these schools, it can be very expensive. There's a premium to choosing it. And I, and I think, you know, in terms of the state school in North Carolina, which is granted has, you know, is for in-state residents, but something like that is more manageable. And they're conscious of the fact that they want people to serve rural communities. Yeah, that's East Carolina University. They only accept applicants from uh, state residents, and their graduates carried a median debt of about 131000 but their income, the median income, was about 120000 So much, much more manageable on that front right there. Still a little over one-to-one, sure. but much closer than a lot of these other dental programs. And certainly, you know, we haven't mentioned chiropractic yet, but those were the programs that had the worst debt loads generally compared to earnings. I mean, chiropractors were borrowing six, seven times their earnings. And so what is being done to address the issue, help the issue, uh, help the students? I know after uh, we said 20 to 25 years, there's the federal loan forgiveness. But as you mentioned, over the long term, that's not going to be untenable. So what are they trying to do? How do they remedy this? <laughs> that's a good question. I think political debate right now is very much about student loan forgiveness and not so much about addressing these more systemic issues. I think that costs are continuing to climb. And I don't know if we have seen any evidence that that's going to change. Graduate programs are generally seen as revenue drivers, money makers for universities. Undergraduates from low-income backgrounds get heavy subsidies, but that's not really true at graduate school. And I think there's an assumption that, you know, if we keep raising costs on the dentists and the veterinarians and the lawyers, they're in these professional fields that make a lot of money, and so they'll be able to pay it off. And that isn't necessarily the case. Yeah. And so there really are lingering systemic issues out there. 
Andrea Fuller, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. I appreciate you having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.